I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to The Lundown, a podcast analyzing breaking news in architecture, housing, and planning produced by Open City, which is a charity dedicated to making cities everywhere more open, accessible, and equitable. From now on, by signing up as an Open City friend from £5 a month, you can get early ad-free access to The Lundown and free tickets to live recordings throughout the year. Plus, you get all the other benefits of being an Open City friend too, including access to an exclusive program of year-round in-person events. Also, by donating, you're supporting independent journalism, keeping The Lundown free and accessible for others, and directly helping Open City's wider educational work, particularly with children and young people from underrepresented communities. To sign up as an Open City friend and get early ad-free access to The Lundown, click the link in the show notes or visit opencity.org.uk slash friends. Thank you. On with the show. Poor housing costing NHS £1.4 billion each year. Rishi Sunak scraps housing targets amid pressure from Conservative members. Developers failing to deliver the play spaces London needs. And new data reveals enduring inequalities in the UK's architecture industry. My name is Fran Williams. I'm an architectural journalist, and I will be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to the Lundown. My guest this week here at Bureau in Design District is Melissa York. Melissa is the Assistant Property Editor at The Times and The Sunday Times. Welcome to the show, Melissa. Hi, Fran. Thanks for having me on. A new Sunday Times investigation has revealed why poor housing is costing the public health system in the UK £1.4 billion every year. This is a story we've covered before on The Lundown with architect Nana Biyama Ofosu and journalist Hetty O'Brien in our South London Gallery live show. The article, written by this week's guest, Melissa York, found that illnesses caused by the UK's cold and substandard homes are the top housing-related cost burden to the NHS. The study also found that factors relating to the quality, security and affordability of homes all have significant impacts on tenant or homeowner health. However, each type of tenure faces its own unique set of challenges. Melissa, tell us what you discovered about the scale of the health crisis caused by housing when researching this article. Yes, I mean, part of the background to this article is that the Times, as I imagine lots of people, are feeling that uh, there aren't any new ideas floating around, (laughs) that basically, uh, you know, the same kind of policy ideas get rolled out again and again and again. So um, 
we've set up a health commission following on from our Times Education Commission last year. And then we're looking at different areas that affect uh, the NHS and how it runs. Because, of course, you know, you can talk about doctors and nurses and their salaries and kind of bureaucracy, maybe, and different policy areas. But one of the things we felt, I definitely felt, was underserved was housing. I mean, when you think about it, it's really obvious. You know, if you have surgery and then you go home to a damp home, that's you know covered in mold you're more likely to get an infection right if you you have young children and again you know you're living in these damp cold wet conditions they're more likely to develop asthma um pneumonia obviously can be kind of progression um because of those kind of poor living conditions i speak to people every day as a housing journalist about you know their poor housing conditions and i'd say honestly about 70% of them start crying People don't realise when you have to go home and it's uncomfortable, it has a huge mental toll on you. It has a huge toll on your mental health. Or if you go home and you're struggling to afford it, every time you, you should go back to what should be your haven or your sanctuary, you go home and all you think about is your you're in financial straits and it's just another reminder of that stress. So, yeah, it's it has a huge effect on physical health and also mental health. And basically, if we were able to invest more in housing and have a better kind of long-term strategy towards it, it could save the NHS an awful lot of money in the long run. In your article, you write about the range of issues facing each type of housing tenure. How do the challenges faced by homeowners differ from those faced by private renters, for example? Basically, homeowners and private rental homes share the same housing-related cost burden to the NHS. And the biggest one is uh, cold and freezing houses. And that's kind of a double-edged sword. So basically, private rentals and um, homeowner-owned houses, uh, they tend to be much older than social housing. And the people living in kind of outright owned homes and things like that tend to be much older as well because of course as we know no younger kind of generations tend to be renting more into older age so i think the average age of a homeowner is about 58 so they're more likely to need the nhs it's about 3.3 percent of owner occupied homes are like excessively cold and obviously as i said that causes asthma basically damage to the patient's immune system and again just considerable stress really you know if you go home you're freezing cold every night it's not great for your mental health either and there's that, and that's kind of a double-edged sword, really, because you've got people who can't afford to upgrade their old housing. They can't afford to insulate it. They can't um, afford to pay the energy bills. You know, that's another huge thing at the moment, obviously. Um, but they also can't afford to fix the roof or put roof insulation in, or you know, they all those kind of things. Um, and they're just just sitting in these freezing cold houses, and it has massive effects. Also, it, you know, exacerbates kind of mold and things like that as well. So yeah, I mean, in, in that way, private rented house and an owner-occupied housing face very similar problems. Obviously, if you're a homeowner, you've got more incentive to put that money in because you have to live in it every day. You've got that incentive to actually go, oh, actually, no, I will put in a heat pump or, you know, I will spend money on insulation or whatever. And then obviously you reap the benefits of it when you go to sell the house because your EPC goes up and you get property values go up. If you're a private tenant, is completely out of control. You've just got to pay the bills that are given to you. you. You've got to ask the landlord to upgrade all of, um, you know, your your old drafty housing. And your private landlord, about 60% of them are individuals that own only one or two properties. They're not, in this country, huge institutional landlords that invest for the long term. So a lot of the time, they will just take the income every month and they 
they won't have enough to cover, you know, cover the mortgage, but they might not have enough to cover upgrades and things like that. They've got no incentive to do it either because they're not living in it and they're not paying the bills. They're just making the bills cheaper for the tenant. And, you know, I'm not suggesting they have like enormous animosity towards the tenant and they want them to pay massive bills. Um, but it's, um, yeah, they don't get the direct benefit of it, basically, until they go to sell it. Um, and even then, you know, are you really going to bother? If you've been a landlord of a property for 20 odd years, your house price has gone up enormously. You've made a huge profit anyway, even without doing any upgrades. So 17% of homes in England are social rented housing. Data from the Building Research Establishment, which is the BRE, indicates that 9% of social houses are in poor condition. However, social housing accounts for only 6% of housing-related costs to the NHS. Many would assume that people in social housing, some of the most vulnerable people in society, would have a higher housing-related cost burden on the health service. Why isn't this the case? Social housing has been in the news recently and and so therefore i think people think that the the problem in terms of the condition of social housing is is really bad uh they've got kind of uh this this view of it as being much worse than private rented housing and actually that's not true private rented housing is the worst condition housing um in the uk i think it's about one in four of them are deemed to be non-decent but obviously, there are problems within social housing. And as I said, I think it's been in the news a lot recently because we had a the kind of tragic death of a two-year-old who was a Wabishak. He died in um, December 2020. And uh, it was possibly the first time that an inquest had blamed his housing conditions, basically. It said it directly caused um, his death from kind of a respiratory condition. And often it's the case that the tenant, unfortunately, the tenant's lifestyle will be blamed for that. Um, because they didn't open windows or, you know, whatever. Um, there were some horrific things that have come out uh, in terms of what tenants are blamed for. So, yeah, that's why it's been in the news. You've also got um, housing campaigners like Quajo Twenaboa, who's obviously got a huge following on uh, Twitter, um, who holds basically social landlords to account for not fixing terrible conditions in housing. Yeah, so basically because of that, I think people have got an inflated idea of how bad social housing is. And it isn't as bad as private rented or owner-occupied housing, basically. And the reason for that is because it's within government control, right? So it's better regulated. They've got something called a decent home standard, which they're looking at bringing in for private rentals in the rental reform bill that's coming up. So they all have to meet a certain standard. The housing's generally newer as well. So it's generally better insulated. Um, most of it was built post-1945. And a lot of private rented housing, for instance, was um, built prior to 1919. Yeah, and also, it, when I say it's regulated, um, if your social landlord, whether that be the council or a housing association, doesn't fix something that's going wrong in your home, um, you can take them to the housing ombudsman for free. And the housing ombudsman will say, you know, they'll, they'll find in your favour, they can find the housing associations, they can do um, all sorts of things like that, and they have certain standards that they're expected to meet. You can take your, your landlord to court, um, but obviously you could end up paying your landlord's costs. And as a private tenant, you might not be able to do that. And as I said, if you're a homeowner, it's, on, it's up to you to fix your housing. You might not always have the savings to do it. So that's why, actually, you've actually got recourse for, for social housing. That's not to say there aren't problems with social housing. There are just different problems. So, for instance, you know, with social housing, um, damp and cold isn't the biggest problem. It's actually things like um, overcrowding, um, falls downstairs in homes again. Uh, mobility concerns like lack of accessibility, more than half. So things like 54% of social households contain at least one member with a disability. 
And that's kind of one in four for private renters, about a third, just under a third of homeowners. So obviously you've got people that perhaps were, were veterans or perhaps are on personal independence payments, so they, they can't be in work and afford private rents. And so therefore this housing has to be much more accessible and it and it just isn't really you know it, it was built as i said lots of it in the 40s and 50s and this kind of thing wasn't taken into consideration wheelchairs weren't kind of as, as cheap and or as accessible you certainly didn't have you know uh, all of the great kind of grab rails and gadgets that you do now so a lot of this housing also needs to be adapted According to a report by the Resolution Foundation covered in the Financial Times, a larger proportion of Londoners live in, a, in poor quality housing than any other region of the UK. Why is London's housing stock so bad? And is the situation similar in other capital cities around the world? It's basically a numbers game, right? So <laughs> it kind of bleeds into the statistics. So obviously, London has more housing than any other part of the UK. It's much more dense. So you end up getting overcrowding. There are a far higher proportion of private rentals in London than there are in other parts of the UK. And it's more likely, as we know, to be um, in poor condition because it's private rented housing. In terms of the condition of housing compared to other places in the world, certainly when you have a look at New York compared to London or San Francisco compared to London, um, they have a far less high proportion of welfare housing or projects. They also, though, have big institutional landlords. So, for instance, if you look in Berlin, loads of the housing stock, especially the private rented housing, um, is owned by big companies. And that's starting to happen in, in London. It's starting to happen in the UK. And they invest for the long term in their housing because it, they're going to hold that asset long term. They also have to fight for private tenants in some parts as well, because a far higher proportion of the people that live there rent. Um, they've also got longer term tenancies, they've got more rights, you know, like they're allowed to paint the walls and have pets and things like that. Um, so yeah, basically, they've got the incentive to to fund this stuff for the long term in a way that kind of, you know, your, your amateur landlord who might just have bought their first flat in London, and then decided to move out and have a family, but decide to hold on to the flat you know, they, they don't have as much of an incentive. And also, they just don't know what they're doing as much. You know, you look at the amount of landlords that know um, about the regulations around private renting, and it's also quite shockingly low. I mean, we've got EPC legislation coming up where they have to upgrade uh, their properties to EPCC, at least. And um, yeah, I mean, just a huge proportion, like half of them d don't even know that's something that they're meant to do. And when you look at where they're getting their information from, that's really interesting too. They're mainly talking to other private landlords. Yeah, it's true. My, um, I have a private landlord and whenever we kind of ask for something, he's like, well, I've just been chatting among my friends and they say, <laughs> yeah. like, that's actually not what legislation says. Um, so back in 1948, when the NHS was founded, the Minister for Health, Nye Bevan, was also responsible for housing. When did we begin to consider health and housing as separate issues? And would once again treating good quality housing as a public good for everyone be cheaper and a more sensible solution after all? Yeah, lots of people don't know that, that Nye Bevan's um, brief was also as a housing minister at the same time as being a health minister, because he saw the two things as hugely interrelated. And he came from, um, you know, he came from Wales, where he saw like a, a lot of kind of mining communities with these horrific lung conditions and things. And that was kind of exacerbated by their poor housing. And then afterwards, I think kind of subsequent governments have 
had a look at that and they've thought, ideologically, I suppose, they've thought, actually, people have a better stake in society. They're more likely, more incentivized to improve their own housing or even, you know, get a better job and, you know, move up the housing ladder or whatever or invest in their community if they're homeowners. So, you know, there's been this shift towards private property with things like right to buy, where, of course, you can buy your council house for, for a discount. You know, and a huge proportion of those people that actually bought their council houses have gone on to be private landlords and have rented them out as well. So, yeah, definitely. There's been a cultural shift in terms of um, viewing housing as, uh, you know, a human right, a social issue over towards an investment and private property. And that's been good in some ways. You know, that's definitely a way to incentivize companies and developers to build a lot more housing, which we need. But also, obviously, the, the knock on effect is that people that can't afford to buy their own homes or do up their own homes or move on from something like private rented housing end up being in these poor conditions. So basically, there's a building research establishment, which is an independent consultancy. And they did this massive report on this. And they suggested that for every one pound spent on warming up the homes of vulnerable people, you'd get four pounds back in health benefits. And that would take about um, seven or eight years to kind of come to fruition. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has defended his choice to ditch housing targets by claiming thousands and thousands of Conservative councillors and activists had raised concerns over a, quote, nationally imposed top-down set of targets telling them what to do. In an interview with the Conservative Home website, Sunak said that the imposition of targets, quote, wasn't a particularly Conservative thing to do. Instead, he reinserted his commitment to, quote, strengthening local plans, which put local people at the heart of the process. Meanwhile, both The Times and The AJ reported that Housing Secretary Michael Gove blocked a generic suburban Barclay Group housing development in Kent because of its insensitive design and failure to meet local design codes. The decision, which is thought to be one of the first of its kind where Gove has used his powers to block a development on aesthetic grounds, follows his pledge to crack down on, quote, ugly identikit houses. So, Melissa, it's now 13 years since the coalition government scrapped New Labour's housing targets. They were brought back amid the spiralling housing crisis and now they are gone once again. Why are Conservative members and councillors so against housing targets? Yeah, this is a really interesting one because it goes at the heart of how our planning system works, essentially, and whether it's democratic or not. So in lots of other places in the world, not saying this is necessarily right, it has its own problems, but uh, they'll have zones, basically, where they'll decide, you know, this zone, this area is ripe for redevelopment. And as long as your application for housing or whatever you want to build meets certain design codes and meets certain criteria, then it gets automatic permission and you have to have a, a kind of a special circumstance to veto it, basically. Our system works in the other way because we have a discretionary housing system or planning system rather where you go in, you put in your application and every single application is judged on its own merits. This is obviously a very democratic way of doing things, right? Because I suppose with the other system, um, applications are automatically approved in your local area and people will feel like planning is done to them which these currently actually how they feel anyway. They, they do feel like planning is done to them and it's not something that they're involved in as a process. And so this is, I think, particularly uh, true in places where you've got um, high house prices, high demand for housing. Obviously, the two things are interconnected and where you've got lots of green space that people want to protect. 
So where's that? So that's basically the home counties, right? So you've got that that kind of outer London commuter belt, which is very wealthy. Um, you know, you've got the green belt that needs to be protected. You've got high demand for housing and developers want to build there. And in the home counties, you tend to get um, a higher proportion of, of conservative local governments. You know, Michael Gove, we were just talking about his Surrey Heath, for instance. Um, and so in order to get elected, these local politicians obviously have to express some empathy, basically, with people that oppose development in the local area. It's one of the only things I think that people in local areas feel like they have control over. You know, it goes back to that kind of take back control thing, right? You're not in charge of your health service. It's very top down, really. You know, you're not in charge of your transport, again, quite like top down. Because our planning system is the way it is, I think that's something people feel like they actually have control over in their local areas. So they cling on to it and it becomes big political issues, particularly locally. So I think that's why basically you tend to get an awful lot of conservative backbenchers that say, I'm not going to get in again if I go to my uh, constituency and I say, actually, you know, from now on, you're not going to have a say in in whether these things get built uh, because we need the housing, and housing targets kind of speak to that as well. So, I, um, yeah, definitely, I, I think it's a really hot political potato whenever it comes around. I like that term, hot political potato. <laughs> Gove is using his powers as housing secretary to block developments on purely aesthetic grounds. Melissa, how unusual is this for the government to use its resources to vet projects in this way? Would we brace ourselves for a swathe of developments tailored in Gove's personal style? And what might this look like in London, for example? Yeah, I mean, it's not unusual for a housing secretary to veto housing developments. I mean, that that does happen. I think what's unusual about it is that he's vetoing it on um, design standards and on beauty, uh, which I know is something that, they're you know, again, they really want to push in their new housing reforms. I almost feel like Gove is trying to to promote that and demonstrate how it would work in practice like almost like this development in Kent is being used as an example and again I think that's Michael Gove saying to local communities who often complain about ugly new housing developments actually we we will we'll listen to you on this he's trying to I think he's trying to get people on board with planning reform basically Children in London are faced with fewer opportunities to play outside thanks to a combination of noise-averse residents and developers who fail to deliver playgrounds. This was the focus of another article written by Melissa York in the Sunday Times this week. The scale of the issue was brought to light when segregated play areas received a London-wide ban last year. We covered this story with TikTok star Joris when it emerged that children from socially rented apartments in a new Thameside development were prevented from accessing the same playgrounds as children from the private flats. Across the capital, it has also emerged that fewer of the playgrounds promised by developers are actually being delivered, and even the sounds of children playing outside are receiving more and more complaints from nearby residents and neighbours. The Guardian also published an article lamenting kids' loss of freedom recently. Melissa, in the article you wrote, you say neighbourhood hostility coupled with a disregard by developers for earmarked spaces for children is leading a war on play. How did this end up happening? So essentially, play spaces and kind of outdoor spaces in general for, for children aren't really seen as that important especially in new developments. And everyone knows what I'm talking about because everyone's walked past like a little gated square of tarmac that has like one springy chicken on it and like a bin. (laughs) 
and and then other people have walked past have taken pictures of like the saddest slide in the world you know like it'll be like next to a huge tower block again all gated on tarmac and there'll just be like a bench and a slide and you're like no kid wants to play there and so you can see that developers do it as like some you know as an obligation and they often put these little play parks and things on the cheapest plot of land they can find and that's loads and loads of of knock-on effects for children's mental health and physical health and it also means these kids particularly during the pandemic they had nowhere to play um they just had to run up and down the corridors you know in blocks of flats or you know they had to go to the roof garden or something and then just kind of stay up there screaming and shouting and the and the people in the in the flats below obviously are going to get annoyed about it so i mean when you don't provide these play spaces it then turns into a residential management issue because then they start complaining to the management company or the housing association and what can the housing association do or like the management company they obviously want to be seen like they're doing something so they're getting complaints so then right to uh, residents. I mean, some of these letters I've seen are, are absurd. You know, they'll be like, no, there has to be a curfew past six o'clock and kids playing out. Or, you know, I've even seen a letter where somebody's been threatened with eviction because their kids have been playing in the corridors and making noise. And it's awful, especially like in London developments, like you said, where you don't have a great deal of space. Again, that kind of exacerbates the problem because you've got kids in social housing that have literally nowhere else to go. And then you've got private sale residents that are complaining about things like this. And so you've got all like the class tensions that come with that. Basically, if you don't plan at the outset for, for decent play areas, you just walk into these kind of neighbourhood disputes and it, it just has huge ramifications. It makes people really unhappy. So you spoke to several parents when researching this article. Uh, what has the effect of this lack of access to play space on children and their families been? It's really sad because a lot of these parents that I speak to and they say, oh, I was never at home when I was a kid. I mean, I talked to my parents and they're exactly the same. And now they just kind of say, oh, none of the kids do that. And I think there's been a lot of blame on things like, you know, mobile phones and video games and things like that. I don't think that's necessarily the case. I just think that there aren't necessarily decent places for these kids to to go and hang out in. And then you've also got uh, the parents. It takes a big mental health strain on them because they've got to supervise their kids 24-7. And it's just mentally draining. And they say, but if I'm, you know, even if they're playing in a in a park just outside my front door in the street, there's now this social attitude where people say, you aren't supervising your kids. You're not watching your kids. Um and so, you know, you're a bad parent. You're not watching what they're doing. It's, I, it, again, it's like that increase since the 90s and like stranger danger and things like that as well. It's just like seen as playing out is now seen as a dangerous thing in a way that it never used to be. And I think a lot of the parents are taking on that as kind of mental health stress and saying, I don't have any time for myself whatsoever because I feel like I have to watch my kids 24-7. And do you know what? It's probably easier to stick them in front of the TV, isn't it? So it's it's kind of this vicious circle, really. You know, you want kids to play out but you're not creating the conditions for them to do so, so kids aren't playing out. <laughs> Especially in London when there's, um, I think people have talked a lot about the, the impact of our cities becoming kind of so car heavy as well. The streets as well, just like they're not particularly safe because of the cars being everywhere. Yeah, well, I spoke to Tim Gill, who is a really interesting kind of academic on this subject and he's written loads of books about it. I mean, he said quite emphatically, cars are a huge part of the problem. He said that a lot of our developments are built with cars in mind to be car friendly and not to be you know like basically not built for pedestrians and by definition if kids can't walk to a play area 
safely, they're, they're not going to go to it or they're going to need a parent to walk them over there and supervise them and you've got the same problem. So what needs to happen for children's right to play to be protected in London, do you think? Banning the, the segregation of playgrounds was was brilliant. You know, it's, it's absurd that kids would go to school together and then come home of an evening and be separated. Like, it's absolutely crazy. I mean, I don't know what that does to a kid's psyche either, you know, being told that essentially, you know, you're, you're lesser than in that space. I know in Berlin, this might be a bit extreme, but I know in Berlin that uh, you're not allowed to complain about kids playing as noise pollution. Yeah, they're just told, no, that's that's not antisocial behaviour. I think that's it, really. I think it's kids playing being seen as antisocial behaviour. And actually, you need to have a, a very strong stance against that where you say to people, no, that's not what that is. I, I think, and there should be some kind of guidelines that they all have to sign up to. You could even make it like a fun, like kite mark or something, right? So you could have like a, like a, you know, play friendly development or something that developers would want to stick onto their things. And it means that they've considered a certain amount of space per child. It means that it's easily accessible for children. or it, And it also means that noise complaints about kids won't be tolerated in that development. And so, I mean, there are all, even just setting out guidelines to managing agents for how to deal with it when they do get complaints. Like there must be a, like a template that they could come up with where they could then just send it out and be like, yes, we hear your concerns, but actually under this blah, 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 this isn't something that we deal with. New figures released by the Architects Registration Board indicate that only 31% of the UK's architects are female, the AJ reported this week. Analysis reveals that while women are underrepresented in the profession, this is gradually improving over time as 47% of all new architects are female, a number which is up on 40% in 2016. Meanwhile, in terms of ethnicity, white people continue to be overrepresented on the ARB register with 88% of architects being white. Black or black British people still only make up 1% of those on the register in comparison to 4% of the UK population. Furthermore, more data revealed the gender pay gap in the UK's top 10 practices has risen, with women earning 15% less per hour than their white male colleagues on average. Melissa, it's 2023. Why are we still seeing such a white male-dominated architecture industry? Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously what I write is very kind of consumer-facing. Uh, I, I don't really have a look at what's big issues in the trades, as it were. So I'm sure you might know a bit more about this, Fran, when you were looking into it. But, I mean, I, I suspect it's it's similar to, to a lot of industries in that it's not very family-friendly, that the hours aren't very family-friendly. Um, it might have got better with remote working perhaps but again if you're going on building sites and needing to actually look at the land that you're designing for it's not really architecture I imagine it's something you could do at home all the time um it's also a very long course as I understand it and quite expensive yeah. <laughs> so again if you come from kind of a less privileged background that's quite quite difficult um and also it's seen as a good well it's a creative industry right which are obviously typically seen to be more precarious than professions um so therefore you know if you're a woman with a dependent that's kind of it's seen as a bit of a higher risk and I think it's the same if you have you know people of color as well you know um as an Asian actor, I was listening to the other day, it was really funny. He said that when he said he wanted to be an actor to his parents, they said, I think you'll find it's pronounced doctor. And it's, um, and this is it. It's kind of, uh, it's that stereotype, but it's, it's, 
you know, it's seen as safety and security, right? And so going into the creative industry is particularly one where you've got to do what is it like a seven year course or something? Yeah, seven. It can be up. It can be up to more. Yeah, and you're saddled with all this debt afterwards. You can see why that might be kind of culturally not very attractive, and and for exactly the same reasons, not very attractive to women, particularly if they've got dependents. Especially as it's still quite a low earning profession, and I think. Um, not a lot of people always know that outside the industry. Um, I think I meet people at parties and they're like, oh, you trained as an architect, you must be paid loads of money. And it's just not true. Um, and I think um, a lot of people do end up leaving because it's just you can't you can't afford to stay in that industry. This is it. Like, do you think it's got there's lack of awareness, perhaps, um, about just the just I know just it as a profession just because I I just imagine kind of architecture to be quite like a middle class profession really yeah, yeah. and uh, and there are lots of kind of people that might want to do that but people from more kind of working class backgrounds just not something that even occurs to them to be an architect yeah. I imagine you know what I definitely. mean definitely I mean is there are there a lot of like outreach programs of like them going into schools and things and being like look this is an option I think there's starting to be I mean um open city obviously um yeah. you do your accelerate program which is really great but um I mean, I, 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 I went to a private school, but it still wasn't encouraged as a subject there. Like no one, no one ever went to do architecture and I never considered it either. I didn't see it as an option. I mean, architecture has ended up being a huge part of my life and it is my passion. I ne never even thought about that as a child. Yeah, and it's very much tied up with people just disregarding housing and buildings as well, right? So, like, you just assume that they've just been there all the time. Yeah. What is the impact of having fewer women or non-white people in these senior positions um, in architecture practices potentially having on our built environment, do you think? Uh, I actually commissioned kind of an uh, an opinion piece for the Times recently from um, Alison Broderick. She's in the kind of planning department of Savills, you know, the big kind of estate agency consultancy. And what was really interesting about that was she was saying, you know, women are up underrepresented in planning as well. And uh, the effect that has is that you create spaces where women don't feel safe. So, you know, spaces that aren't well lit spaces where you know the benches are put in quite prominent places where women might feel like they're being watched or looked at it kind of in a certain way and there are loads of studies actually there's one in Sweden which is really interesting showing that um, uh, boys and girls use public spaces equally up until about the age of eight so basically when they hit puberty and then afterwards girls kind of vacate that space um, and because they just don't really feel safe in those public spaces in the same way anymore, which is incredibly sad. Um, and yeah, it, it's something like 80% of public spaces thereafter are kind of dominated by men. So, uh, yeah, so again, if you had women in kind of more women in architecture um, and, and more kind of non-white people in architecture and in planning, they'd be able to be in the room and say, oh, I wouldn't feel comfortable going for a jog there because it's not well lit. Or, you know, for instance, they might say, oh, we've got money for a public art project. Um, so we were thinking about commissioning a statue on this person. And then you might have somebody in the room being like, do you know that they were associated with slavery? Like, I don't think that's going to be great for everyone living in that community. You know, so you actually do need to have these people in the room to point this stuff out. Otherwise, it just doesn't get done. And I think another really interesting thing was kind of to tie up with the play spaces. A lot of the play spaces are um, kind of ball games centred. So they're kind of like those, you know, 
what are they called like MUGA kind of space multi-use games areas and they've also got like basketball courts and stuff like that and like you know a lot of the time again a stereotype there are lots of kind of women that obviously enjoy ball games but yeah you know I suppose if you're being quite self-conscious as like a young teenage woman you don't want to be standing on the edge of a basketball court while loads of guys are like you know being I don't know playing basketball and shouting rude things at you I mean I'd yeah, experience of that so it's yeah it's it's that all those kind of things that will improve but will only improve if you diversify the people in the workforce now for culture accelerate debates is back to tackle one of the hottest topics in architecture right now demolition the debate curated by open city accelerate in partnership with ACAN, will interrogate the merits and pitfalls of both sides of the demolition versus upgrades argument a star-studded panel will fight it out for the future of architectural practice on Thursday, the 11th of May at Rich Mix. Tickets are available now on the Open City website. So Melissa, it's been a pleasure chatting to you on The Lundown this week. Where can our listeners go to follow your writing? They can go to thetimes.co.uk. Um, they could also go to our suite of podcasts as well. Uh, yeah, we do one every day called Stories of Our Times. Um, and yeah, there's a, a whole bunch of, of podcasts on there that I often appear on. Any social handles? Oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> I have terrible at promoting my own work. I have got, um, I'm at Mel York on Twitter. Great. Thank you. You've been listening to The Lundown, a podcast from Open City made in association with the 20th Century Society and the London Society. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've covered, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which reports on all these issues and many more. To get early ad-free access to The Lundown and to support the important educational work of Open City, please become a friend of the charity today. The link is in the show notes. The Lundown is produced by Poppy Waring and hosted by Merlin Fulcher, Finn Harper, Cyber Chatter and Fran Williams. The editor is Merlin Fulcher. Our theme music is by Chris Zabriskie. Open City is dedicated to making cities more open, accessible and equitable. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.